Chapter 20, Part 1 of Marie Antoinette and Her Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Muehlbach to the 21st of January. We must look misfortune directly in the eye, and have courage to bear it worthily, said Marie Antoinette. We are prisoners, and shall long remain so. Let us seek to have a kind of household life even in our prison. Let us make a fixed plan how to spend our days. You are right, Marie, replied Louis. Let us arrange how to spend each day. As I am no longer a king, I will be the teacher of my son, and try to educate him to be a good king. "'Do you believe, then, husband, that there are to be kings after this in France?' asked Marie Antoinette, with a shrug. "'Well,' answered Louis, "'we will at least seek to give him such an education that he shall be able to fill worthily whatever station he may be called to. I will be his teacher in the sciences, and I will interest him and our daughter in music and drawing,' said the Queen. "'And you will allow me to teach my niece to embroider an altar-cover,' said Madame Elizabeth. "'And in the evening,' said Marie Antoinette, nodding playfully to Princess Lamballe, "'in the evening we will read comedies, that the children may learn of our Lamballe the art of declamation. "'We will seek to forget the past, and turn our thoughts only to the present, whatever it may be. "'You see that these four days that we have spent here in the temple have been good schoolmasters for me, and have made me patient. "'And—but what is that?' exclaimed the Queen. "'Did you not hear steps before the door? "'It must be something unusual, for it is not yet so late as the officials are accustomed to come. "'Where are the children?' and in the anxiety of her motherly love the queen hastened up the little staircase which led to the second story of the temple where was the chamber of the dauphin together with the general sitting-room louis charles sprang forward to meet his mother and asked her whether she had come to fulfil her promise and go out with him into the garden the queen instead of answering clasped him in her arms and beckoned to teresa to come to her side oh my children my dear children i only wanted to see you i the door opened and the king followed by his sister princess lamballe and madame tourzel entered what is it cried marie antoinette some new misfortune is it not she was silent for she now became aware of the presence of both of the municipal officials who had come in behind the ladies and in whose presence she would not complain manuel who since the tenth of august had been attorney-general manuel the enemy of the queen the chief supervisor of the prisoners in the temple was there and marie antoinette would not grant him the triumph of seeing her weakness "'You have something to say to us, sir,' said the Queen, with a voice which she compelled to be calm. "'Yes, Manuel had something to say to her. He had to lay before her and the King a decree of the National Assembly, which ordered old parties who had accompanied Louis Capet and his wife to the temple, either under the name of friends or servants, to leave the place at once. The Queen had not a word of complaint, but her pride was vanquished. She suffered Manuel to see her tears. She extended her arms and called the faithful Lamballe to her, mingled her tears with those of the princess, and then gave a parting kiss to Madame de Tourzel and her daughter. The evening of that day was a silent and solitary one in the rooms of the temple. 
Their last servants had been taken away from the royal prisoners, and only Clary, the valet of the king, had been suffered to remain, to wait upon his master. The next morning, however, Manuel came to inform the queen that she would be allowed to have two other women to wait upon her, and gave her a list of names from which she might choose. But Marie Antoinette, with proud composure, refused to accept this offer. We have been deprived of those who remained faithful to us out of love, and devoted their services to us as a free gift, and we will not supply their places by servants who are paid by our enemies." "'Then you will have to wait upon yourselves,' cried Manuel, with a harsh voice. "'Yes,' answered the queen, gently. "'We will wait upon ourselves and take pleasure in it.' And they did wait upon themselves. They took the tenderest care one of another, and performed all these offices with constant readiness. The king had, happily, been allowed to attain his valet, who dressed him, who knew all his quiet moderate ways and who arranged everything for the king in the little study at the temple as he had been accustomed to do in the grand cabinet at versailles the ladies waited upon themselves and marie antoinette undertook the task of dressing and undressing the dauphin the little fellow was the sunbeam which now and then would light up even the sombre apartments of the temple with the happy carelessness of infancy he had forgotten the past and did not think of the future he lived only in the present sought to be happy and found his happiness when he succeeded in calling a smile to the pale proud lips of the queen or in winning a word of praise from the king for his industry and his attention and thus the days went by with the royal family monotonous sad and dreary no greeting of love no ray of hope came in from the outer world to lighten up the thick walls of the old building no one brought the prisoners news of what was transpiring without they were too well watched for any of their friends to be able to communicate with them this was the greatest trial for the royal captives not a moment by day or by night when the eyes of the sentries were not directed toward them and their motions observed the doors to the ante-rooms were constantly open and in them always there were officials with searching looks and with severe faces watching the prisoners in the inner rooms even during the night this trial did not cease and the queen of france had to undergo the indignity of having the door of her sleeping-room constantly open while the officials who spent the night in their armchairs in the ante-room drank played and smoked always keeping an eye on her bed in order to be sure of her presence even when she undressed herself the doors of the queen's apartment were not closed a mere small screen stood at the foot of the bed this was removed as soon as the queen had disrobed and lain down this daily renewed pain and humiliation this being watched every minute was the heaviest burden that the prisoners of the temple had to bear and the proud heart of marie antoinette rose in exasperation every day against these restraints she endeavoured to be patient and to choke the grief that rose within her and yet she must sometimes give expression to it in tears and threatening words which now fell like cold thunderbolts from the lips of the queen and no longer kindled anything no longer dashed anything in pieces thus august passed and september began sad gloomy and hopeless on the morning of the third of september manuel came to the royal prisoners to tell them that paris was in great excitement and that they were not to go into the garden that day as usual about noon but were to remain in their rooms how is it with my friend princess lambelle asked marie antoinette manuel was perplexed 
He even blushed and cast down his eyes as he answered that that morning the princess had been taken to the prison La Force. Then, in order to divert conversation from this channel, Manuel told the prisoners about the tidings which had recently reached Paris and had thrown the city into such excitement and rage. The neighboring powers had made an alliance against France. The King of Prussia was advancing with a powerful army and had already confronted the French force before Chalot, while the Emperor of Germany was marching against Alsace. Marie Antoinette forgot the confusion and perplexity which Manuel had exhibited in the importance of this news. She hoped again. She found in her elastic spirit support in these tidings and began to think of the possibility of escape. It did not trouble her that beneath her windows she heard a furious cry as the crowd surged up to the prison walls. The head of the Austrian! Give us the head of the Austrian! She had so often heard that. It had been so long the daily refrain to the sorrowful song of riot which filled Paris that it had lost all meaning for Marie Antoinette. Nor did it disturb her at all that she heard the loud beatings of drums approaching like muffled thunder, that trumpets were blown, that musketry rattled, and loud war cries resounded in the distant streets. Marie Antoinette paid no heed to this. She heard constantly ringing before her ear Manuel's words. The neighboring nations have allied against France. The King of Prussia is before Chalot. The Emperor of Germany is advancing upon Strasbourg. O oh God of heaven, be merciful to us. Grant to our friends victory over our enemies. Release us from these sufferings and pains that our children may at least find the happiness which for us is buried forever in the past. And yet Marie Antoinette could speak to no one of her hopes and fears. She must breathe her prayer in her own heart alone, for the municipal officials were there, and the two servants who had been forced upon the prisoners, Tyson and his wife, the paid servants of their enemies. Only the brave look and the clearer brow told the king of the hopes and wishes of his wife, but he responded to them with a faint shrug and a sad smile. All at once, after the royal family had sat down to take their dinner at the round table, all at once there was a stir in the building which was before so still. Terrible cries were heard, the steps advancing up the staircase. The two officials, who were sitting in the open anteroom, stood and listened at the door. This was suddenly opened, and a third official entered, pale, trembling with rage, and raising his clenched fists tremblingly against the king. The enemy is in Verdun, cried he. We shall all be undone, but you shall be the first to suffer. The king looked quietly at him, but the Dauphin, terrified at the looks of the angry man in his loud voice, burst into a violent fit of weeping and sobbing, and Marie Antoinette and the little Theresa strove in vain to quiet the little fellow by gentle words. A fourth official now entered, and whispered secretly to his colleagues, Is my family no longer in safety here? asked the king. The official shrugged his shoulders. The report has gone abroad that the royal family is no longer in the temple. This has excited the people, and they desire that you all show yourselves at the windows, but we will not permit it. You shall not show yourselves. The public must have more confidence in its servants. Yes, cried the other official, still raising his fists. Yes, that it must, but if the enemy come, the royal family shall die. And when at these words the Dauphin began to cry aloud again, he continued, I pity the poor little fellow, but die he must. 
meanwhile the cries outside were still louder and abusive epithets were distinctly heard directed at the queen a fifth official then came in followed by some soldiers in order to assure themselves in the name of the people that the capet family was still in the tower this official demanded in an angry voice that they should go to the window and show themselves to the people no no they shall not do it cried the other functionaries why not asked the king come marie he extended his hand to her and advanced with her to the window no don't do it cried the official rushing to the window why not asked the king in astonishment well cried the man with threatening fist the people want to show you the head of lambel that you may see how the nation takes vengeance on its tyrants at that same instant there arose behind the window-pane a pale head encircled with long fair hair the livid forehead sprinkled with blood the eyes lustreless and fixed the head of princess lambel which the people had dressed by a frisier to hoist it upon a pike and show it to the queen the queen had seen it staggering she fell back upon a chair she gazed fixedly at the window even after the fearful phantom had disappeared. Her lips were open, as if for a cry which had been silenced by horror. She did not weep, she did not complain, and even the caresses of the children, the gentle address of Princess Elizabeth, and the comforting words of the king could not rouse her out of the stupefying of her whole nature. Princess Lambelle had been murdered, and deep in her soul the queen saw that this was only the prelude to the fearful tragedy in which her family would soon be implicated poor princess lambelle she had been killed because she had refused to repeat the imprecations against the queen which they tried to extort from her lips swear that you love liberty and equality swear that you hate the king the queen and everything pertaining to royalty i will swear to the first was the princess's answer but to the last i cannot swear for it does not lie in my heart this was the offence of the princess that hate did not lie in her heart the offence of so many others who were killed on that third of september that dreadful day on which the hordes of marseilles opened the prisons in order to drag the prisoners before the tribunals or to execute them without further sentence the days passed by and they had to be borne marie antoinette had regained her composure and her proud calmness she had to overcome even this great grief and the heart of the queen had not yet been broken she still loved she still hoped she owed it to her husband and children not to despair and better days might come even yet we must keep up courage she said to live till the dawn of this better day and it required spirit to bear the daily torture of this life always exposed to scorn and abuse always watched by the eyes of mocking reviling men always scrutinized by madame tyson her servant who followed every one of her motions as a cat watches its prey and among all these sentinels the most obnoxious of all was the cobbler simon commissioned by the authorities to supervise the workmen and masons who were engaged in restoring the partially ruined ancient portion of the temple simon had made himself at home within the building to discharge his duties more comfortably it was his pleasure to watch this humiliated royal family to see them fall day by day and hear the curses that accompanied them at every step he never appeared in their presence without insulting them and encouraging with loud laughter those who imitated him in this 
Some of the officials in charge never spoke, excepting with dreadful abuse of the king, the queen, and the children. One of them cried to his comrade in presence of Marie Antoinette, If the hangman does not guillotine this accursed family, I will do it. When the royal family went down to take their walk in the garden, Santerre used to come with a troop of soldiers. The sentries whom they passed shouldered arms before Santerre, but as soon as he had passed and the king came, they ground their arms and pretended not to see him. In the door that led into the garden, Roger, the turnkey, used to stand, and take his pleasure in letting the royal family wait before unlocking, while he blew great clouds of smoke into their faces from his long tobacco pipe. The National Guards who stood in the neighborhood used to laugh at this and hurl all sorts of low, vile words at the princesses. Then, while the royal prisoners were taking their walk, the cannoneers used to collect in the alleys through which they wandered and dance to the music of revolutionary songs which some of them sang. Sometimes the gardeners who worked there hurried up to join them in this dance and to encircle the prisoners in their wild evolutions. One of these people displayed his sickle to the king one day, and swore that he would cut off the head of the queen with it, and when, after their sad walk, they had returned to the temple, they were received by the sentinels and the turnkey with renewed insults, and, as if it were not enough to fill the ear with this abuse, the eye too must have its share. The vilest of expressions were written upon the walls of the corridors which the royal party had to traverse. You might read there, Madame Vito will soon be dancing again, down with the Austrian she-wolf, the wolf's brood must be strangled, the king must be hanged with his own ribbon. Another time they had drawn a gallows, on which a figure was hanging, with the expression written beneath, Louis taking an air-bath. And so, even the short walks of the prisoners were transformed into suffering. At first the queen thought she could not bear it, and the promenades were given up. But the pale cheeks of her daughter, the longing looks which the Dauphin cast from the closed window to the garden, warned the mother to do what the queen found too severe a task. She underwent the pain involved in this, she submitted herself, and every day the royal pair took the dear children into the garden again, and bore this unworthy treatment without complaint, that the children might enjoy a little air and sunshine. One day, the 21st of September, the royal family had returned from their walk to their sitting-room. The king had taken a book and was reading. The queen was sitting near him, engaged in some light work, while the Dauphin, with his sister Teresa, and his aunt Elizabeth were in the next room, and were busying each other with riddles. In the open ante-room, the two officials were sitting, their eyes fixed upon the prisoners with a kind of cruel pleasure. Suddenly, beneath their windows were heard the loud blast of trumpets and the rattle of drums. Then followed deep silence, and amid this stillness the following proclamation was read with a loud voice. The monarchy is abolished in France. All official documents will be dated from the first year of the Republic. The national seal will be encircled by the words Republic of France. The national coat of arms will be a woman sitting upon a bundle of weapons and holding in her hand a lance tipped with a liberty cap. The two officials had fixed their eyes upon the king and queen, from whose heads the crown had just fallen. They wanted to read, with their crafty and malicious eyes, the impression which the proclamation had made upon them, but those proud, calm features disclosed nothing. 
Not for a moment did the king raise his eyes from the book which he was reading, while the voice without uttered each word with fearful distinctness. The queen quietly went on with her embroidery, and not for a moment did she intermit the regular motion of her needle. Again the blast of trumpets and the rattle of drums. The funeral of the royalty was ended, and the king was, after this time, to be known simply as Louis Capet, and the queen as Marie Antoinette. Within the temple there was no longer a Dufat, no longer a Madame Royale, no longer a princess, but only the Capet family. The Republic had hurled the crowns from the heads of Louis and Marie Antoinette, and when, some days later, the linen which had been long begged for had been brought from the Tuileries, the Republic commanded the Queen to obliterate the crown which marked each piece, in addition to the name. But their sufferings are by no means ended yet. Still, there are some sources of comfort left, and now and then a peaceful hour. The crowns have fallen, but hearts still beat side by side. They have no longer a kingdom, but they are together. They can speak with looks one to another. They can seek to comfort one another with smiles. They can cheer each other up with a passing grasp of the hand that escapes the eye of the centuries. We only suffer half what we bear in common with others, and everything seems lighter when there is a second one to help lift the load. Perhaps the enemies of the king and queen have an instinctive feeling of this, and their hate makes them sympathetic in order to teach them to invent new tortures and new sufferings. Yes, there are unknown pangs still to be felt. Their cup of sorrows was not yet full. The parents are still left to each other, and their eyes are still allowed to rest upon their children. But the one and indivisible republic means to rend even these bonds which bind the royal family together, and depart those who have sworn that nothing shall separate them but death. The Republic, which had abolished the churches, overthrown the altars, driven the priesthood into exile, the Republic cannot grant to the Capet family that only death shall separate them, for it had even made death its servant, and must accept daily victims from him, offered on the place de liberté, in the centre of which stood the guillotine, the only altar tolerated there. In the middle of October, the Republic sent its emissaries to the temple to tear the king from the arms of his wife and his children. In spite of their pleadings and cries, he was taken to another part of the temple, to the great tower, which from this time was to serve as his lodgings. And in order that the queen might be spared no pang, the Dufat was compelled to go with his father and be separated from his mother. This broke the pride, the royal pride of Marie Antoinette. She wrung her hands, she wept, she cried, she implored with such moving, melting tones not to be separated from her son and husband that even the heart of Simon the cobbler was touched. I really believe that these cursed women make me blubber, cried he, angry with the tears which forced themselves into his eyes. And he made no objection when the other officials said to the queen, with trembling voices, that they would allow the royal family to come together at their meals. One last comfort, one last ray of sunshine. There were still hours in these dismal, monotonous days of November when they could have some happiness, hours for which they longed and for whose sake they bore the desolate solitude of the remaining time. At breakfast, dinner, and supper, the Capet family were together. 
Words were interchanged, hands could rest in one another, and they could delight in the pleasant chatter of the Dufas when the king told about the lessons he had given the boy and the progress he was making. They sometimes forgot at those meetings that death was perhaps crouching outside the temple, waiting to receive his victims, and they even uttered little words of pleasantry to awaken the bright, fresh laugh of the Dufas, the only music that ever was heard in those dismal rooms. End of chapter 20, part 1, read by Ella Barnett.